Welcome to the Creative Pen Podcast. I'm Joanna Penn, thriller author and creative entrepreneur, bringing you interviews, inspiration and information on writing, publishing options and marketing ideas for your book. You can find the episode show notes, your free author blueprint and lots more information at thecreativepen.com and that's pen with a double n. And here's the show. Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 635 of the podcast and it is Sunday the 17th of July 2022 as I record this. In today's show I'm talking to Becky Robinson about her book Reach, create the biggest audience for your book, message or cause. And I really got on well with Becky as we agree about so much so it's a lovely conversation that I hope you will also find useful and reassuring in terms of your marketing. Because the tools and technology might change, but the principles of marketing actually do remain the same over time. And it was great to find that Becky and I agreed on so much when it comes to marketing. So that's coming up in the interview section. So in publishing and book marketing news and things, Ryan Holiday had an interesting article on his blog. And I know he is a polarising character, but this was about the things you think matter don't, which definitely ties into part of what Becky and I talk about today. So Ryan talks about hitting bestseller lists with books and how much we think they should matter, but actually they don't for sales or impact. Ryan says of the Wall Street Journal list, this had absolutely no impact on the sales of the book or my ability to have a writing career. What mattered was whether the book continued to sell well over time and whether I continued to have interesting things to say. It took Ryan more than a half dozen other books before he became a New York Times bestselling author. And he says, let me tell you, nothing changed. He debuted on the list at number one and he says, nobody threw me a parade. My speaking fee and my royalties did not go up. Writing a book that I'm proud of, saying what I have to say, growing as a writer in doing it, making something that reaches people, that makes a difference in their lives. That's way more important. And I always like hearing that message (laughs) and it's certainly been true in my life and it's worth remembering but then of course we will all go out and try and hit whatever list we decide is important but it's always good to question these things. This long-term view also ties into an article this week on the self-publishing advice blog on making the most of your backlist which is basically any book except the one you are currently launching. It includes availability and discoverability, adding new formats, revisiting covers and metadata like categories and keywords, updating your email, autoresponders, free and on-sale promotions, bundling, rights licensing and more. So that's at selfpublishingadvice.org. Again, links in the show notes as ever. Also, author Tracy Buchanan wrote a piece for the bookseller called Craving Independence. The self-publishing show live, which I spoke at and lots of people attended the other week um, with Mark Dawson and James Blatch and lots of indies, uh, the SPS live 
show explored a flourishing indie scene and traditionally published authors want in. So Tracy noted five things that surprised her as a traditional, traditionally published author. And the bookseller is really a publication for the trad pub world. So this is quite an interesting article to for them to have allowed to publish, basically. Uh, she notes indie author data shared by Alex Newton from Klytics. The raw data shows many authors are earning good money in the digital realm of publishing, which I thought was funny because it's kind of like, really, this is actually happening. <laughs> and she says indie authors are working faster and smarter and uh, producing more books that are well reviewed. So speed isn't impacting quality. And she questions is this why many traditionally published authors I speak to are finding it increasingly difficult to find traction in the digital bestseller lists? Not only are more indie authors flooding the digital book market, but they're flooding it with great quality books. So although I slightly dislike the word flooding there, uh, it is an interesting perspective from a traditionally uh, published author. And she says, trad pub authors are sitting up and taking notice, not necessarily with trepidation, but with admiration and inspiration. Maybe the new wave Joanna Penn talked of, and yes, I indeed talked about the creator economy, uh, includes even more high profile traditionally published authors taking the independent route. If so, how will the industry react? Only time will tell. And uh, I enjoyed the article. It was definitely fair. And it's always interesting to hear from traditionally published authors. However, I think that if the high profile traditionally published authors are the ones who have a career that is generally pretty protected and are not the ones going indie. And in fact, a lot of the trad pub authors coming into indie are those who are what we would call mid-list. And like, I'm a mid-list uh, indie author. But definitely, I think the high profile ones, that doesn't really matter. Because if your career is going well, then you're not necessarily going to want to change things. So uh, I do think that the focus there was was slightly off. But really interesting article there from uh, Tracy Buchanan. And finally, the 21st Century Creative Podcast is back with another season hosted by my friend and occasional podcast guest here, Mark McGuinness. And this season, Mark is focusing on creatives who pivoted their business models due to the pandemic. And Mark's podcast always has an introduction with things to think about in terms of your own creative practice. So definitely worth checking out. I always learn a lot from Mark. And let's face it, wherever we are in our lives, pivoting and new business ideas can always be thought provoking. So just search 21st Century Creative uh, on your podcast app. So in my personal update, yes, my Shopify store is live at creativepenbooks.com. And I know many of you have been and bought How to Write a Novel. Thank you so much. It is available in ebook, audiobook, paperback and workbook editions. And the workbook just has questions in and uh, space to write answers. It doesn't have the text of the book. Um, the paperbacks are printed here in the UK with an independent printer, bookvault.app, which integrates with Shopify. I am so thrilled to be able to do drop shipped print on demand, which means if you order one of the print books, and pretty much all my books are there, including my mum's. <laughs> this is actually one of the awesome things about having one store, creativepenbooks.com, is that Joanna Penn's there, JF Penn is there, and Penny Appleton is there, and there will be no impact on any algorithms. 
<laughs> anyway, if you buy a paperback, um, that just get the order goes straight to bookvault.app and they print it and ship it. So I don't have to touch them. I don't have to ship them. And at the moment, all the paperbacks uh, are printed here in the UK and then shipped. So and I have had a couple of emails where people have said, um, it looks like the ship. I have to pay for shipping. And uh, I don't have to do that if it goes through a certain online retailer. And also it takes a lot longer. I I won't get next day delivery. And I kind of had to say, look, uh, I cannot compete with named online retailer (laughs) in any form, actually. But this is an independent printer and I'm an independent author and this is a new process. So yes, it might take a little more time. And yes, shipping costs money. But I completely understand. If you would rather wait, then I I will be putting the books, um, the book up in every format on every platform, including print on all the usual places around the 13th to 15th of August 2022. So you can always wait. I'd be very happy for you to wait and buy it then. That's fine. Uh, In terms of the quality, this is, I'm really pleased with it. And Sasha Black, ordered as soon as I launched. And thank you, Sasha. And uh, she was one of the first to receive her copy. She's here in the UK. Of course, if you're in the UK, you're going to get them faster than those of you in America, Australia, Hong Kong. Like They're shipping all over the world, which is brilliant. But Sasha was one of the first to receive the book. And she messaged me. She said, it's gorgeous with a lot of exclamation marks. It has a coloured insert title page and the cover feels like silk. And I've said this and people didn't necessarily believe me, but the quality is just superb. And it does indeed have a colour title page, which means if you get the copy with the t- the colour title page, you know it is this special edition that has gone through the independent printer. It's their matte lamination if you decide to use them yourself. And as I said, the quality is great. Yeah, I, and I've loaded all my books there, but this is the only one with the colour front page. Um you can order the ebook, the audiobook, and the paperback or the workbook at creativepenbooks.com. And I'm really enjoying some of the feedback that I'm getting. Obviously, there's a few uh, little issues, technical issues and process issues, but I decided I had to get my minimum viable store out and I will be doing all the bits and bobs later on. And I will also be doing a couple more episodes on Shopify. And uh, so those will be coming up in the next few weeks. So getting the store out has been the main focus, but I have also cleaned my office. And I don't know if I've mentioned this before, so I thought I'd tell you what that means. Well, it does actually mean cleaning the office, but there's a reason. So when I write a book, I buy a lot of print books. I buy lots on uh, ebook as well and audiobook, but I buy a lot of books in print and scribble on them and take notes and things like that. So I, in my office, which isn't that big, it's kind of a sink, it's like a child's bedroom. It was a child's bedroom before we bought this house. And the booth I'm in right now takes up probably a quarter of the room. So I don't have that much space for my desk and floor space. But essentially what happens when I'm writing a book is I end up with print books all over the floor, piles of print books related to the book I'm writing. So I've had all these creative and writing books and reference books and things all over my floor. And then as the finishing energy becomes a little bit out of control and everything, all that life material, paperwork, just ends up in piles on my desk. And uh, I do urgent stuff like pay my bills and things, but I just have lots of things that I haven't done. And so I finish the project and then 
I essentially clean my office. So I remove all the books that I've been using on the current book. Uh, some of them go to friends, some of them go to, to the charity shop, some of them I keep for sure, but lots of them I don't keep because I move on to the next project. And what I do is I get the books for the next project, which is just I just love it. I absolutely love it. So what I'm always doing is collecting books and research material for my next project. So for a while now, a couple of years, I have been collecting books on pilgrimage and walking. And those are the books that are now on the floor of my office. Yes, I do hoover, <laughs> vacuum, as you call it elsewhere. Uh, I, and I clean my desk and I do my paperwork. So yes, I am walking the Camino de Santiago in September from Porto in Portugal up the coast to Santiago de Compostela. And in fact, coming this week on my Books and Travel podcast is an interview with women's fiction author Imogen Clark about her Camino along a similar route. So that's a fascinating conversation if you too are drawn to these pilgrimage routes. And my memoir, will, which is going to be the next book, is like a travel memoir uh, about pilgrimage and walking in midlife, because <laughs> I am classically midlife. Uh, These are about the three pilgrimages, the Pilgrim's Way, St Cuthbert's Way and the Camino de Santiago. And I've already written quite a lot of words on the book and I hope to have it done by December or at least out, maybe out in December or out in January 2023. And again, I basically now I intend to launch direct for the first month with the special print editions and then publish wide. This is going to be my business model going forwards. Sort of um, collect a bigger chunk of the pie up front and then put the books everywhere. I'm also overflowing with fiction ideas right now. I am just, I'm just so thrilled. I talked about how I've had to do my finishing energy bits the last few weeks. And it's just part of the business of being an author, right? But I am so ready for the creative cycle to turn again and get back into first draft writing. This is how I like to do things. I like to have project a project-based life and uh, one project finishes, the next project starts. That is why this is such a fun career. <laughs> So thanks for your emails and tweets and comments. Uh, Amy says, I loved your interview with Tess Gerritsen. I listened while walking in the woods of Wisconsin, US. I especially love the craft episodes. I always learn something new. Keep them coming. Susie Starbuck on YouTube said, really enjoyed this episode. While listening to Tess, a solution to a fundamental novel outline problem miraculously popped into my head as a result of something she said. I had to pause halfway through the interview and scribble it down. For that, I'm immensely grateful. And Pauline Wilson says, I listened to your podcast on my early morning walks. Thanks to your information and inspiration, I have just self-published my first novel. Brilliant. Congratulations, Pauline. And thanks for the beautiful dawn light in the trees picture. And remember, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen with a double N. Send me pictures of where you're listening or email me, joanna at thecreativepen.com or leave a comment on the blog or the YouTube channel. I love to hear from you. It makes this more of a conversation. So this episode is sponsored by Kobo Writing Life, Kobo's free, fast and easy self-publishing platform. KWL was built by authors for authors and their team of dedicated book lovers is always working hard to help you reach new readers around the world. Right now, digital books are reaching more people than ever and libraries are becoming an integral part of that. 
In 2021, top digital library systems powered by Overdrive loaned 500 million books, an increase of 16% on 2020. That's half a billion book loans, which means a lot of happy library readers. You can easily reach library readers through Kobo Writing Life. All you need to do is go to the rights and distribution section of your book, click yes to overdrive and enter a library price. Your book will then be available to librarians to purchase for multi-loan use, but also for a one-time checkout option. Distributing with KWL means you're not paying any aggregator fee and you earn 50% on every library sale. If you're interested in taking part in library promotions, email KWL's dedicated author care team at writinglife at kobo.com and they'll add you to the mailing list. And don't forget to tell your readers they can now pick up your book in libraries. Oh, and I'll just uh, pause here to say, yes, you can get my books in libraries (laughs) and how to write a novel will be available in libraries as soon as I publish it everywhere wide. So, yeah, I love libraries. I grew up in libraries. I'm sure many of us did. So important to have books available in libraries. So if you want to learn more about KWL, check out the Kobo Writing Life podcast available wherever you get your podcasts and find them on social. Create your free account today at kobo.com forward slash writing life. Right, so this type of corporate sponsorship pays for the hosting, transcription and editing, but my time in creating the show as well as the in between episodes of which I've got some more coming and also I do the Q&A for patrons all of that sponsored by my wonderful patrons. Thanks to new and returning patrons uh, Cian McKinnon or Kian McKinnon, Claire A. Wheeler, Calvin Jim or maybe that's Jim Calvin, (laughs) Marla Allen, Jerry Windley-Doust and David Goodin. Thank you so much, everyone. And thanks to everyone supporting the show on Patreon. It means an immense amount to me and really helps me continue when (laughs) the show continues to march towards episode 700. And some days I wonder whether it's still useful, but your uh, support helps me realise that it is. If you support the show, you get the extra Q&A, which is coming soon. And also I did a promotion for my patrons uh, as part of my launch and uh, they got a percentage off and also they got first access essentially and helped me with that. So you get behind the scenes um, promotions and also discounts. You can support the show at patreon.com, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash the creative pen. Right, let's get into the interview. Becky Robinson is the author of Reach, Create the Biggest Possible Audience for Your Message, Book or Cause. She is also the founder and CEO of the digital marketing agency, Weaving Influence. So welcome to the show, Becky. Thank you so much, Joanna. It's great to be with you. Oh, fantastic. This is such a great topic and many authors need this. But let's start with an attitude question because many authors actually hate the idea of marketing. So how can they reframe it as valuable and important for reaching readers? Well, so I think one thing is to really focus on the reason why you wrote the book in the first place. So most people who write nonfiction write it because they have a valuable message to add to the world. They have an idea or a cause that they want to promote through their nonfiction book. And if someone's writing fiction, then they likely have a story that they want to tell that compelled them to write and publish a book. So I think staying connected to the reason why you wrote the book in the first place can help you have 
perhaps a different attitude toward marketing, because I think what authors quickly find out is that without marketing, they are unlikely to reach the audience that they have intended for their book. So in terms of another reframe, I also try to help authors overcome this idea that when they're promoting their book, they're promoting themselves. No one really wants to feel like they're a self-promoter, or very few of us do. And so instead, I encourage people to reframe and look at it that a book, when you have a book to promote, it's not book promotion is not self-promotion, it's message or story promotion. And so those two tweaks of really viewing marketing your book as bringing value to others, either through learning or education or inspiration or entertainment, and then realizing that apart from sharing your book, likely your audience won't discover it. Mm, That's so important because I feel that there is an overarching message, which I think has been done by the traditional industry, which is if your book is good enough, people will find you. Is that true at all? I don't think so, Joanna, except that It's the early efforts to get our book into audiences' hands that potentially could propel you beyond those early audiences, and in a way, then people would find you. But I think those uh, those chances are quite rare. And, you know, instead, if you write a book and it's out there and you don't promote it, chances are it will just get lost. You know, there are millions of books on Amazon. There are hundreds or thousands of new books released every day. So every book needs to find an initial audience. The hope would be that once you find an initial audience, if that audience finds value, they'll expand awareness and share the book with others, but there there are no guarantees. So in order to ensure that we create the reach that we want for our work, we really do need to have a focused and diligent approach and an approach that goes over months and years, not only just over the days when the book comes out. And you mentioned value there. And I love that your book talks about value. It's definitely something that I focus on as well for my nonfiction. So what do you mean by delivering value and how can we do that in our marketing, not just in our books? Sure. So the first thing I would say is that we want to be very clear about the audience that we're creating content for. It's the audience who determines the value. So you mentioned to me, Joanna, before we started to record that your audience is authors. So of course, authors find value in what you're creating. But I think the mistake that some authors make is they think their book is for everyone. And when you try to serve everyone, in some ways you may never serve anyone. So if you have clarity about who your audience is, you'll be more likely to predict what they will find valuable. So the value is really determined by the person who's receiving the content. So as it relates to how you can share value through your marketing and not only through your book, the way that you can do that is by using the content in the book and other related content in your online presence. So you want to think about what's the content that I can regularly create and share that will meet the felt needs of my audience, that will be of value to my audience, And what are the various ways I can bring that to them so that as I'm showing up in online spaces, it's not just with the message of buy my book, buy my book, buy my book, but instead it's actually sharing the content from within the book in a way that will attract awareness and interest. I just want to follow up on a couple of things that you talked about the clarity around who the audience is. And I feel this is actually a a really difficult thing for people because even if they don't say my audience is everyone because I feel like 
people often just think about themselves. So I'm a woman in my late 40s. I'm British. I'm happily child-free. I'm married. There are things about my demographics. But what I found with my own audience, particularly with my fiction, is it's more about interests than demographics. So I, I feel like sometimes the sort of traditional ways of thinking about a market can underestimate the more global reach around, I guess they call it psychographics, which is people who are interested in certain topics or certain genres of fiction. So how can we both broaden and narrow our idea of who our audience is and find out who they might be? Sure. Well, I've always thought about audience and the discovery of audience as somewhat being a discovery-driven process. And what I mean by that is we might start out with a certain demographic, as you mentioned, in mind. And along the way, we might discover that there are people outside of that demographic who are finding value in or who are interested in our work. And sometimes I like to actually work backwards. So, you know, your audience really is those people who start to show up and engage with you. And so if you're having trouble getting clarity about who your audience is, it can be helpful to really distill down to who are the people who are engaging with the content that you're creating. Now, obviously, you want that to expand over time. Um, But like, for example, with email marketing, I will often get an idea of my the audience that I'm sending my email marketing to based on who responds to me and what I can learn about them. And so as I send out my email newsletter on Fridays, I'm asking a lot of questions in hopes that people will write me back so I can really learn who they are. So I think it can be helpful to think about your audience like almost in that one-on-one way. And if you're crafting content, whether it's a blog post or a podcast interview or a webinar or an ebook, really it can help to just identify one person. So of the people who have been engaging with your online content, is there one person that, that this particular piece of content is meant to serve? And one of the ways you can do that is if you receive a lot of questions from people. I have a young woman who has followed me and we're, we're connected, we're friends. And sometimes when I craft content, I do it exactly with Nikki in mind. And I'll think, okay, well, Nikki, who's a first-time self-published author, has this set of questions. I want to create some content to answer her. And in doing so, I'm going to attract others like her. Does Mm. that make sense, Joanna? Yeah, absolutely. You did mention something there that I know will freak some people out. And it's something I think about it is those who show up and engage Mm. (laughs) our, our audience and asking questions to learn who they are. So I'm an introvert and I love creating. I've written over 30 books. Many people who are listening, we love writing books. That's what we want to do. We're authors. And so the thought of spending so long doing email or engaging on social media when our words could be perhaps better put into writing more books, what would you say to that? So I think for any creator, you need to learn how to balance the creating of your new books with showing up with value in online spaces. It may mean that you need to get some support if you can afford to hire a team member who can engage with or for you. Or it may mean that you need to really think about what it is that has driven the success of your work. And it's not one size fits all. So I've met some authors. In fact, I met a fiction author earlier this year at an event. His name is Stephen James. And apparently he's like really great best-selling fiction author. Well, one of the things about fiction is the more books you publish, the more you can grow an audience almost organically, because as people discover and love one of your books, they'll 
buy and read others. And then your backlist can get stronger. So in some ways, there there is a case to be made on the fiction side to keep writing, maybe even beyond prioritizing an audience all the time, because the more books you have, the more books people will be able to find. But I would also say that there has to be a way that you show up in online spaces to build awareness for your work. So just figuring out what works for you as an author. Yeah, I think that's really important. It is about choosing what works for you. And like I I choose audio. Audio is one of the formats I choose. And But what I like about this format with, with podcasting is there are many thousands of people who will listen to this interview and we don't know who they are. And I feel like this is actually one way of providing value to an audience, but you don't necessarily, it's more of a push thing. Now, some people will email, some people will tweet, and some people will leave a comment, but nowhere near the number of people who consume the content. So what do you think about this type of push or broadcast media compared to the, like you said, the asking people to respond to an email or on social, which to me is much more intense? So the choice to do a podcast and deliver content of value in an audio format is a completely valid way to grow an audience. And what I would say about it is that it's important on the other side to just have clarity about the metrics of your podcast so that you can decide whether or not you need to promote it in other ways to continue to expand your audience. So in the book, I define reach as not only lasting impact, which we can have as people choose to read our books or listen to our podcasts, but also expanding audience. So as a creator, and uh, Joanna, you may know that I also have a podcast. I want to know how many people are listening. I want to get as much information about them as I can, so I can continue to create and share content that will be of value to them. Yeah, absolutely. So let's come back to the book. You include generosity in your list of important principles, which again, I really love because I feel this is something I've focused on since the beginning. So what are some of the ways we can be more generous in practical ways with our marketing? Sure. Well, I'll start with the simplest one. And what I've noticed in serving authors over the past decade is that the more books you give away, the more you expand the audience for your book. Now, I understand that not everyone has the capacity or financial margin to give away books, but whenever possible, I recommend making your book available in different ways to to people who might benefit from it. And one author I've served has said that for every book that he wants to sell, he needs to give away 10%. So if you want to sell 10,000 books, he thinks along the way you need to give away at least 1,000. And I don't have any scientific data about that, but I've definitely noticed on my own journey that by giving away the book, I help people discover its value and that compels them to share it with others. So the first way that you can be generous is just giving your book away if you have the means to do so. The second thing I would say is giving away the ideas in the book. So if you're a nonfiction author and you can share in various ways, whether it's audio, if that's what's comfortable, whether it's through free webinars, whether it's through your social media presence, sharing the message of the book freely with others. I would say also sharing of yourself to promote others. So I've noticed on my journey, when I've been able to promote others' books or others' work, quite often that can create a world in which then they become interested in my book. And I've noticed this among fiction authors. The good thing about fiction is that most people who read fiction are always looking for the next read. And so if you're a fiction author and you can promote 
other authors who have written books that are similar to yours, then there's this amazing synchronicity that happens where people can move from one author to the next and really enjoy um, the work of many authors. So I have a fiction author I've been supporting, Stephanie Lansom, and she writes historical fiction. And I just see consistently her pointing people to other historical fiction books that she loves. And that generosity of spirit, I think, then helps her to be seen as not only someone who can recommend great books, but then people might be interested to read hers. Mm, I totally agree. And I I call that social karma, (laughs) which is you share without the expectation of return, but it does return eventually from another source or somewhere else. But the more generous you can be, I feel like, and also it's just a positive way to live, right? It just makes you happy to be generous. And then I feel like it, it does come back in some way. Yeah, I think so. And there's definitely joy to be shared if you love books and you are attracting other people who love books to just be able to say, hey, here's what I'm reading. And I loved it. And as an author, it's so great to be on the receiving end of that as well. Mm, yeah, I'm all, I mean, all of us are readers. <laughs> I'm always sharing the books I'm reading. But I also, I love that you mentioned giving away the ideas in your book. I and mean, we were talking about nonfiction here, because as a podcast host, one of the most annoying things is when someone comes on the show and they'll go, oh, well, I can't share that because that's in my book and I want people to buy the book. So what would you say to people who use podcasting to promote their book? I mean, is it the same? Give all the ideas away. Yeah, I mean, of course you want to give all the ideas away because how can people know that they want to buy your book if they're not sure what you're writing about? And I I personally found that there it's not really possible to give away too much. I try to give away as much as I can. Obviously, I, I run a business and so I do need to attract customers to my business. But when I show up to a call with someone, I can never be sure if they're going to hire me or not. But I want to give absolutely as much value in that first time of meeting someone as I can because what that shows them is that they can expect that I'll continue to give value to them if they happen to hire me. And I feel like it's the same way with a book. I don't think you can give away too many of the ideas in your book. All you're doing really is demonstrating to someone that the content is something that would benefit them. And if not, then your book probably isn't for them. Absolutely. And they will have turned off by now. (laughs) Which is what I also like about podcasting. People can really choose whether to stick around and listen. So I I, just to get again, get back into the book. So we know we have to have an author brand. And in the book, you say branding doesn't have to be complicated or confusing. In fact, it's super simple. And again, I know all the listeners are going, what? What is she talking about? So tell us more about this. Sure. I think that people will often overthink branding. And honestly, your brand already exists. The brand is you. And the way that you can get clear about your brand is really to articulate the value that you hope to bring to audiences. And then there's also the set of choices that we can make about our brand. So your brand can be like visually how people envision you in terms of what you look like, but it's also the personal qualities that you bring to your work. And one of the ways that we can figure out what our brand is by asking people. I can uh, call up my three best clients and say, hey, what do you think I'm good at? What do you think of when you think of me? And so it, it doesn't have to be this over wrought analysis, but it's really like, who are you? And what's the best of who you are? And What's the best of what you want to bring to others? Well, it's so interesting you say that because at the beginning you said 
it's not about self-promotion. It's about message and story promotion. So how do we say that the brand is us while not promoting ourselves? Uh, well, that's a really, really good question, Joanna. And I, I guess how I would differentiate those two thoughts is that people connect to people. And so particularly with nonfiction, I think that people who are reading nonfiction want to know who the thought leader behind the book is. And so while promoting our book is about promoting the value that we're bringing to others, I think we do that by connecting in personal relationship with others. Now, you mentioned being an introvert and feeling a little bit uncomfortable with this idea of engaging. And I I don't necessarily think it has to be one-on-one because, of course, like one-on-one relating to the readers of our book doesn't scale. But I think that part of generosity is just being generous about sharing of ourselves. And the more authentic we can be in sharing the content that we've created with the world, the more easily people will feel like they're connected to us. I'm not sure if that makes sense. And so the idea is the brand is you because people connect to people. And as you share your book, you're sharing content that's of value, but the way that people connect with that content is often personal. Mm, yes. And uh, I didn't mean it to be a trick question. I just, I try, I try and ask things that challenge people and that no. think differently. But I think it's important because, I mean, we're in this interesting world where on the one hand, we're encouraged to be open and transparent and authentic and real and all this stuff. But people also are worried and they're afraid of being too transparent, too authentic, and perhaps giving too much away or privacy falls apart. And I think about it as this sort of curated authenticity, which is you and I have brands and we're, this is our honest conversation, but it's also our curated selves. And we're talking about a particular topic. And I feel like that's an important distinction. It's like, yes, be yourself, but this particular part of yourself that you're willing to share with an audience and, but still protect a part of yourself and keep it private. Yes, a wholehearted yes to that, Joanna. And I appreciate you highlighting that because I know that there are times on my journey where I feel kind of that pull of, am I really authentic if there are parts of me that I choose to keep private? And yes, of course, you can both have boundaries and privacy and curate an authentic self through your online presence. I think it's it's good to just remember that your online presence isn't necessarily all of the real you. It's it's part of the real you. And there are parts along the journey that of course I choose to keep private and there are times that I choose to be vulnerable or transparent if it can serve my audience more effectively. Can I share an example of that with you mm, Joanna? Yeah, yeah. Well, so one of the things I talk about in the book is the importance of closing what I call the influence gap, which is the gap between who you are in terms of your expertise in in in-person spaces and who you are online. And what I say is that when you choose to show up online in the same powerful way that you show up in person, then you can create the biggest possible impact for your work. What I realized when I had a book signing at a bookstore about a month after my book came out is that I've likely invested more time in online spaces than in offline spaces. And I had all these beautiful photos from the book signing, but they didn't tell the whole story because the truth is I didn't do a good job with my in-person networks. And the only person who showed up to that particular book signing was my husband's cousin and his wife. (laughs) And so to me, part of having a real and authentic brand is not kind of curating to make the book 
signing look better than it was, but trying to navigate how do I share about this in a way that might add value to my audience so that authors know, hey, if you're going to have an in-person book signing, you have to do the hard work of inviting personally your in-person network, or you may have this disappointment like I had. Mm. And in fact, for me, the lesson learned, well, in fact, I've never done one. My whole thing is global, online, scalable marketing. I just don't, I just barely do anything in person. Mm. (laughs) I mean, it's all about what, and in fact, if I, if I ever do a book launch event, it will just be more of a party, I guess. I have thought about it for maybe my 50th birthday or something, eventually doing a book launch or a book signing. (laughs) But yeah, I feel like in person, you definitely have to like organize that a lot more. Whereas I feel like this, like our interview now, people could be listening to this in years, years to come and it will still provide value. Whereas the physical book signing to me is, is not really marketing almost. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think it's more of a reflection again of the time invested in a particular place. And so for those of us who are mostly building online presence and attracting a worldwide audience, then who shows up in one room at one point in time may not be an accurate representation of the impact that we're having in the world. Mm, Super important point. Okay, so let's talk about longevity, because again, a quote from the book, authors may expect to achieve success at the outset that others accumulate over decades. And I really feel that, especially as first-time authors, I remember feeling this too. It's like, oh, my book's book's coming out. I'm going to change all these lives. I'm going to make a million dollars. I can retire, all this stuff. So how do we keep that ambition and that hope alive while still building for the long term? Sure. Well, I I do think it's important to have a reality check for a first-time author to realize this is just the first book. It is just the beginning. And to have insight, if you think about nonfiction thought leaders who are making an impact over time, I'll share two with you. So Brene Brown, everyone thinks that her viral TEDx talk that came out around 2013 um, was when she became big and better known. Well, Actually, she was writing and publishing for a decade before that, and she's been writing and publishing for a decade since then. And so it's not fair to look at someone like Brene and think, as a first-time author, I can achieve that kind of success. It really is the accumulation of adding value to spaces over time that helps a person become more well-known. I think for me, in partnering with authors over time, it's been really obvious. So one of my heroes, if you will, is Whitney Johnson. And Whitney Johnson is listed on the Thinkers 50. She's number eight. She's the number eight recognized thought leader around the world by Thinkers, by the Thinkers organization. I worked with Whitney back in 2012 when she marketed and launched her first book. And more than 10 years later, when she launched Smart Growth, which is her latest book, I think it's her fifth book, she did make the Wall Street Journal bestseller list, the USA Today bestseller list. But it's only because of the hard work that she's done across the decade to build her thought leadership brand and to build audiences and to to add value to others. She's done hundreds of podcasts in that time and hundreds of LinkedIn live interviews with people. And she's really built this amazing network and audience. And so I think, you know, a reality check for any first-time author is just to know that it's not likely that you're going to achieve that kind of success of someone who's been out there for a decade when your first book comes out. So really just seeing that every every bit of content that we create or every book that we write will likely result in a growing audience and just to be patient with ourselves. <laughs> mm. 
Yeah. And I mean, I also think like I've never heard of Whitney Johnson and I mean, Brene Brown, I've heard of Brene, obviously, and I've read some of her books, but I feel like when we, if there are people we've heard of and we kind of expect that, well, okay, so it took her a decade. Well, then it should take me a decade, but then a lot of people don't become Brene Brown in a decade. And I feel like this almost the importance of finding a tiny niche. And I mean, I'm tiny bit of internet famous in my tiny, tiny corner of the internet. (laughs) And I make a multi six figure business as an author and I'll never be as big as Brene Brown, but we can still carve out our niche without hitting any lists or making it big on YouTube or whatever. Right. Well, of course. And can I just share with you a moment, Joanna, Mm. like if you could see me, I like I have my hand on my heart right now because the original title that I had for my book was actually not reached. The original title was famous to a few. And the reason why I had that as my working (laughs) title is because it is true that most of us will never be famous like Brene Brown. But if we choose to show up with value to the audiences who know us, we can become famous to those few who are choosing to follow us. And from those few, we can expand the impact that we have larger beyond just a few. And so when you say like, I'm famous in my little corner, I want to say yes. And that's that's what it really means. If we want to make a difference in the world, we can choose to be famous to the people who are listening to us. We can choose to be famous to the people who are reading us. And if we're fortunate, those people will choose to share our work with others and our impacts can expand. But I think that we'll all do much better if we focus on the difference we want to make in the world and not about not focus on fame and not focus on fortune. Yeah, this is the thing. I'm so glad. I I prefer that title, actually. I think that's great. I think it sounds more like the Kevin Kelly's Thousand True Fans model, which I feel is truer than ever, which is if you have a thousand true fans, you can make a living as a creator, basically. And that can be enough. Although I don't think a thousand book sales at 99 cents or even 9.99 is is enough. (laughs) But it is interesting that we can sort of niche down in that way. And I, I do wonder if this is, I mean, obviously you're a marketing professional, but I feel like some marketing is focused on, well, you need to get on this TV show or you need to do this thing. And that people associate marketing, good marketing in inverted commas, with getting famous. Whereas personally, I don't want to be famous. I don't want to be on TV. I don't want to attract, I actually don't want to attract attention. And I think a lot of people feel that way, but yet we have to attract attention to sell books. It feels like that dichotomy. Yeah, that is a a difficult and tricky thing. I don't necessarily think that being on TV will make you famous. And so I would like to differentiate between kind of this viral effect where maybe if you go on TV, suddenly you have tens of thousands more eyeballs on your work, but that's not necessarily going to translate into that longer term difference that you want to make. And so for someone who wants to make a difference, wants to make a living, I think it's the consistent value that you're offering to those audiences who need to hear from you that will achieve more for you in the long run than being famous and being on TV. Absolutely. And that I feel like the slow growth, I've never had anything viral happen. I've hit bestseller list, but it hasn't made that much difference. And, and I feel like the slow growth is actually has been very sustainable. And my sanity has been sustainable as well as my bank account. And yet it's been slow growth year on year for almost 15 years now. Well, it sounds like you've discovered something magical that most of us would love to recreate. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, it's just what you say. And that's why I was happy to talk to you, because I feel like delivering value, generosity, long term thinking. This is literally what I've been talking about on my show, which is why I was so happy that you talk about it in your book. Yes, I think maybe I just put together these thoughts in a way potentially that's easy to remember, easy to understand, and describes the experience of people like you who are out there really living it out day by day. Yes. Yeah, so, well, let's talk about the long-term thing because you mentioned earlier you've been marketing for the past decade, and I've been doing this since 2008. And I feel like there are things that have changed and there are things that have stayed the same. So I'm interested in your thoughts. What has stayed the same and and what has changed since you've been doing book marketing? That's a great question. So I think that one thing that has stayed the same is that building a true network of connections and adding value to others still works. So when I started back in 2000. Well, I started my business in 2012, but I showed up in online spaces in 2009. So if I go back to 2009, which is a little bit longer ago, that was when people were really starting to use Facebook and Twitter primarily for online marketing. And it may be that now that the channels in terms of the popularity of them has shifted. So I no longer use Twitter in quite the same way that I did back in 2009. And there are more of these newer channels that are emerging. So what we're seeing right now is that especially fiction authors are getting a lot of traction on TikTok. Of course, TikTok didn't exist in 2009. So while the channels may change, I think the need to show up with consistency to share value in whatever channels you choose, that's the part that hasn't changed. And if I think about advice that I would have given myself in 2009 that would stay the same now, it's that your online presence really needs to have a core that you own and control. And so an author's own website really is the most valuable asset. And I believe that from there, once you have your own website, you also want to build a permission-based email list because I think similar to back in 2009 or 2012 or whatever, email marketing is a great way to convert people to whatever offers you have. And so that hasn't changed really in my mind from then to now. But what has changed is the various channels that people choose to invest in that are owned by others. I think about Google Plus. So in about 2012, 13. Oh, I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. People got obsessed over growing their Google Plus. And of course, now that's not even a channel. So those channels that we choose to share content on, they come and go. But what doesn't really go is the need to really carve out your own space online and share value with others. Mm, well, of course, you, well, you'll remember MySpace as well, which was <laughs> the thing before Facebook and YouTube. And I mean, I, I think it's, it might still be around, but it kind of was the big thing. And then suddenly it wasn't the big thing anymore. Exactly. Well, and you could say the same thing about blogging or podcasting. So back in 2009, of course, blogging was more popular. Now, podcasting is all the rage. And so it's what hasn't changed is we need to show up in spaces with valuable content. What has changed is the popularity of various types of content. And of course, now, as I mentioned, TikTok, those shorter video reels are quite popular. I can't say I'm ready to jump into that game myself. And based on what you said about (laughs) 
preferring audio, I'm betting you're not ready to jump into that space either. <laughs> no, definitely not. De- but you mentioned podcasting. Yeah, it's interesting. I actually feel like I have been doing the same thing since 2008, 2009. And you said it, which is I've always owned and controlled my website, my email list, and I've driven people to my list from everything else. And But what's so funny about podcasting is because I started this podcast in 2009, nobody listened for, well, barely anyone listened for years. But because I was trying to give value, I stayed the course. And then, of course, when podcasting really took off, I was well positioned to be in the right place at the right time and take advantage of audio, SEO and all those things. So I feel like sometimes if you find the channel that really that you love and you stick around, then it can work. And of course, the channels for audio have changed. So like Spotify, a lot of people will be listening to this on Spotify, which wasn't around in 2009. But because I own and control this audio feed, I can put it wherever I want. So again, as you say, it comes down to owning and controlling your marketing assets. Yes, indeed. And that speaks again to the value of generosity. The fact that you started your podcast long ago allows you to continue to have a growing audience and bigger impact with it because you have chosen to stick around. So then we're almost out of time, but in terms of you as an author, so you spend most of your time helping authors market their books, but now of course you have this book to market. So what kinds of marketing have you found most effective in selling your book? Yeah, that's a great question. I would say the thing that I did that I'm the most proud of is the generous distribution of my book pre-publication to over 400 people to drive early interest in Amazon reviews. So I feel like that's one of the most important things that we did is look to mobilize those people around me by getting the book to them in advance of launch so that they could read and review it. I would say also we have done a lot of podcast interviews, which has been really fun to reach new audiences for the book, because obviously my own podcast or my own email list is is a limited group. And so partnering with others like you who are willing to share my content with your audiences has been a great way to expand uh, people finding out about the book. So I would say those are two of the key things that we've done. But I think also there's just kind of this everyday decision that you have to make of in what way can I show up with value on my core topics today? In what way can I serve authors and thought leaders and nonprofit leaders today? What can I create that would be a value to them? So it's that kind of consistent presence to show up with value. And we're about two months past my book launch as you and I are talking. And it's really just the beginning. So I'm having to remind myself again also of the importance of having that long-term view. And while it's possible that the content in my book may not always be as relevant as it is today, I feel like I wrote it in a way that even though the channels may change, the basic concepts that I share should have a long life. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I'm glad you said that too, because so many people think book marketing is about launch week or launch month, which again is a very traditional publishing focus because generally you get a publicist for a month and the book is in the bookstores for a couple of months. So yeah, I mean, for most of us, book marketing is it just goes on and on, doesn't it? And certainly I think your book, I think it most of it is entirely long-term and the same, like I have book on marketing and it, the principles as we talked about remain the same, right? Yes, of course. I used to always say, Joanna, that book marketing is a marathon, not a sprint. 
And I really changed my tune since my own book came out. And the reason is because when you say book marketing is a marathon and not a sprint, you still imply that there's a finish line to reach. Mm. Whereas uh, what I'm thinking about now is that book marketing is more like having a lifelong commitment to fitness (laughs) and choosing to continue to be fit across your life because there's no finish line to that. And I, I feel like to continue to add value through a book, there really isn't a finish line that we're striving toward. It's that ongoing long-term willingness to show up and add value generously to people through our ideas. Brilliant. So where can people find you and your book online? So my book is available in all your favorite online retailers, but if you want to find the links to find the book, you can go to beckyrobinson.com forward slash book. When you get there, you'll have the chance to listen to an audio sample, read a free chapter of the book if you'd like, and then all the links to buy the book are there at beckyrobinson.com forward slash book. If you want to find out more about my company, you can find us at weavinginfluence.com. And my podcast is called the Book Marketing Action Podcast. But one quick note for your readers, when they do choose to buy my book, one of the things that they'll do is unlock a free course that I built full of additional resources that wouldn't fit in the book. So I don't know if you noticed this, Joanna, but at the end of every chapter of my book, there's a QR code. And when you scan the QR code, you get prompted with a quick survey. Once you've done the quick survey, you can sign up with a login and you can access the course and all the free resources. Brilliant. Well, thanks so much for your time, Becky. That was great. (laughs) I loved being with you. Thank you, Joanna. So I hope you found the interview with Becky interesting and that it gave you some reassurance around marketing. It doesn't have to be a rush or a sprint, but more of a long-term approach to giving value and attracting an audience who value your creative work. I know that can be frustrating if you want to hit the top of the charts and make a ton of money right away, but perhaps it's more sustainable this way for your bank account and for your sanity. So in next week's show, I'm talking about writing a bestseller with A.G. Riddle, who writes sci-fi thrillers that have sold millions of books and have attracted multiple publishing deals and film and TV options. Jerry started out indie and is now a hybrid author, and he has some really interesting thoughts on what he is willing to give up in order to have more time to write. I found it a thought-provoking interview about the deeper questions of a writing career, so I think you'll enjoy it. In the meantime, happy writing, and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. See you next time.